to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was the war that broke the world, a cataclysm that left empires in ruins and demolished centuries-old structures and elites. It gave rise to some of the most evil regimes that ever existed, and also inspired some of the most enduring liberal international ideals which live on to this day. Far from being an ugly slugfest that meant nothing, the First World War was a time of promise and peril when the stakes could not have been higher, not just for empires and nation states, but also a whole range of religious, ethnic, racial, and national minorities. Promise, as many minorities hoped service in the war would earn them increased rights and perhaps even autonomy and independence. Peril, because fears, real and imagined, sometimes accurate but more often grossly exaggerated, of minority treachery threatened to lead to persecution, up to and including genocide, as was indeed the case with the Ottoman Armenians. Few minorities experienced the possibility and the reality of both than the Jews of Europe during the war, especially those living in the Russian Empire. With me today to discuss their experiences, tragedies, and triumphs is Andrew Koss, a historian of the Jews of Eastern Europe in this period and associate editor of Mosaic Online Magazine. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Uh, So, uh, where are we going to start? Let's start with an obvious question. How did you get into um, Jews in the First World War? Because although I've uh, been studying the war for many years now, Um, I often feel that it's overshadowed by World War II, so I'd love to hear how you came to realize that this was an important period for the Jewish people. So I went through a world, going way back, I went through a World War I phase when I was uh, a nerdy, I don't know, maybe 14-year-old, 12-year-old, something like that, uh, and read uh, Barbara Tuckman and some other books about World War I. Uh, And then much later, uh, after I was out of college, I was working as a research uh, assistant at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in D.C. And I kept running into these little tidbits about World War I in what were really World War II, mostly in World War II memoirs. Uh, Like, for instance, people would talk about when the Nazis showed up and occupied their town and say, oh, I remembered when the Nazis occupied our town during the First World War. Uh, And other little things like that, this then uh, reminded me of stories I had heard from my own grandfather uh, years before and didn't have a historical context for uh, that took place, it actually, as I later learned, not during World War I, but immediately afterwards. And that got my gears churning. And next thing I knew, I was uh, pursuing a PhD in, in history, specializing in East European Jewry. And this was my dissertation topic. Fascinating uh, and really cool. So before we get into the war itself, uh, I thought perhaps we might try and paint a bit of a picture of what life was like before the whole world blew up. Uh, instead of asking you to describe the Jews of the Russian Empire, as your focus is on the city of Vilna, or Vilnius as the Lithuanians officially call it, uh, why don't you give uh, me and our listeners something of a tour of Jewish Vilna uh, in 1914 before the war started? 
good. I, I like that question. It's a, it's an easy one. Uh, so if you look at the city of Vilna on the eve of World War I, uh, the first thing to know about it is that it's uh, located in an area called the Pale of Settlement, uh, which I think I'm going to have to talk about later, so I might as well explain now, which is basically the western borderlands of Russia. So it's equivalent now roughly Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, chunks of Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, vaguely. And by Russian law, Jews were could only could not live outside the pale without special permission. So there were lots of Jews outside the pale. It was a big area, uh, but most Jews were in the pale, and it was hard to get permission to move outside. Uh, Vilna was a city with a population that was about forty percent Jewish and forty percent Polish. Uh, of that last twenty percent. Most of them were ethnic Russians uh, because Vilna was part of the Russian Empire, as you mentioned. And only a tiny minority uh, were Lithuanians in the modern sense of what Lithuanian means now. And if I don't want to get into describing that too much, maybe later. Um, so it's a very different city uh, than what it is now. It was a city that uh, 200 years before had been at, at, at its peak as a center of trade, as a center of Jewish scholarship, as a place that was very emotionally important uh, to Poles, important economically to the Russian Empire. By this time, it's gone into economic decline, but it's still an important city. And for Jews, we're talking about a population that's overwhelmingly Orthodox, but not exclusively so, uh, that overwhelmingly speaks Yiddish as uh, their native language. And those, it's worth noting, those who don't speak Yiddish aren't speaking Lithuanian or Polish. They're speaking Russian, uh, which is the lingua franca. And it's a city where the Jews have a lot of pride in themselves, uh, whether they're secular, whether they're religious. Uh, they're very proud of Vilna's Jewish heritage as a great center of Talmud scholarship, of rabbinic scholarship. Uh, some of your listeners may know that there was this great rabbi who lived there in the 18th century, the Vilna Gaon, uh, who, who uh, people don't even call him by his real name. His real name was Eliyahu ben Shlomo Zalman, but everyone knows him as the Vilna Gaon, and, this, and his very, the very fact that he had been a rabbi there made the city important. And on top of that, you have this other culture of secularizing Jews. Some of them are Zionists, some of them are socialists, some of them just want to write good poetry in Yiddish or in Hebrew, and they see themselves as the kind of secular heirs of that rabbinic tradition, and they see themselves as not just Jewish intellectuals, but Vilna Jewish intellectuals, and are very proud of that. And on top of that, the city has a kind of equivalent symbolic importance for both the Polish and Lithuanian and even Belarusian national movements. So it's a city that's somewhat important economically. It's a bigger city than a lot of cities nearby, but for everybody, and most importantly, it's a kind of symbolic city. Uh, it's a city where the Jews are overwhelmingly not particularly rich, but you do have some rich Jews, successful Jews, a lot of Jewish doctors and so forth. Wow. So there was, it sounds like there was a real uh, strong sense of local patriotism and local attachment. Let's uh, move on to the war. 
the July crisis happens. Um, Austria is threatening Serbia and Europe is about to be plunged into war. And eventually it is plunged into war. And while many people uh, in the early years after the war talked about how everyone was enthusiastic about uh, going to war, they thought it would be cool, they thought it would be an adventure, they thought it was a great national cause. Uh, I have to wonder, how did the Jews uh, react? Because I remember on a lark when uh, the anniversary of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand happened that sparked the whole thing. I took a look at two Jewish newspapers, one of which was based in the Russian Empire, one of which was based in Germany. I'll focus on the one on the, from the Russian Empire where it seemed that they weren't all that enthused. They weren't really caught up in the enthusiasm. They said, for instance, uh, Russian nationalists were talking about how their Slavic brothers, the Serbs, were suffering from pogroms, and this is an awful thing. And the Jews were being kind of sarcastic and saying, well, you guys encourage pogroms by, against us, so what, how does that make you better? Uh, so I guess I'd formulate the question, how did the Jews react to the July crisis itself? And how did they react to the war? Were they afraid? Were they cynical? Were they hopeful? So the, the one word answer to your question was yes. Uh, <laughs> they were all those things. Uh, there was not the same overwhelming enthusiasm among Russian Jews, uh, probably among Russians in general, that you see in other countries. Uh, I. I would guess, and this is not my area of expertise, and probably nobody knows the answer, uh, but the overwhelming masses of Russian peasants were not particularly enthusiastic about the war either. Um, and Jews had a lot of skepticism towards the Russian government. Uh, they had the big news in Russian Jewish history on the eve of the war was in uh, 1913, was the Bayless trial. Uh, where a guy named Mendel Bayless uh, was being tried for a, a literal blood libel. Uh, and this was a formal trial with a prosecution and a defense and uh, the, the whole nine yards. And I think uh, eventually the judge decides that, you know, eventually the case is appealed after he's convicted, but it, it's, it's very, <laughs> it does not inspire Jewish confidence in Russia as a place where uh, they have a future. And you have to remember also, it's only been 10 years since uh, uh, 1903, 1904. I'm, I now don't remember the exact year when the Kishinev program happened. Uh, following that, between 1904 and 1907, uh, you have a wave of, wave of programs surrounding the uh, Russo-Japanese War and the, uh, the uh, uh, aborted Russian Revolution of 1905. So, Jews don't have an overwhelming sense of uh, Russian patriotism. But, and, and this is a, a, a big qualifier, there are Jews, uh, particularly a certain kind of middle class and educated Jew, who thinks, you know, maybe this is our chance where everybody's going to work together. And, and this is very similar to a feeling that's very widespread among German Jews and maybe widespread among people in general in Europe as European countries are, are, are entering the war that 
goes beyond uh, just Jews and Gentiles, that everyone's going to work together in this massive mobilization of the populace, not just mobilization by putting on your uniform, but using all your skills and all your abilities towards the war effort. And this is going to bring people together. Jews have a chance to show that uh, they're real Russian citizens, they can fight like anybody else, and so forth. And maybe this will even uh, lead to liberalization. Uh, one additional factor is that Russia is now allied with the democratic powers. Uh, there's, there's a sense that it's democratic uh, Britain and France versus less democratic uh, Austro-Hungary and Germany, and that maybe the democratic powers will have some good influence on Russia. Uh, none of that really happens. It turns out to be, a very, in general, a very bad time for the Jews. Um, but there is thinking along these lines, and it's not, it's not crazy for people to think that. I want to add one other little tidbit, which is that the day the war started was actually the, uh, was Tisha B'Av. It was actually, I think, the 10th day of the Jewish month of Av, uh, which, as you know, and as many of your listeners know, uh, is a fast day on which all... Uh, so I'm sorry, I have to backtrack with the details. It's the ninth of Av is usually the fast day because the ninth of Av uh, fell on a, on a Saturday on Shabbat. The fast day is postponed to the Sunday, which is the tenth of Av, which is the day the war technically starts. And this is a day of mourning. It's a day when, according to the ancient rabbis, all the bad things in Jewish history happened, and nobody thought it was a particularly good sign that the war starts. Uh, on this on this very inauspicious day. Indeed, uh, that was something I noticed myself, and um, at least for Russian Jews, it was about to get worse. Uh, one of the things I learned about while reading about uh, Russian Jews was that in 1915, towards the end of 1914 and in 1915, the Russian army suffered from a series of very serious defeats. Uh, the Battle of the Second Mazurian Lakes, and especially the, bre uh, the breakthrough of Gorlitsa Tarnov, which forced the Russian army to retreat and, and give up an enormous amount of territory. And during that time, um, they looked for scapegoats. And one of the big scapegoats, along with the German and Austrian uh, subjects of the Russian Empire, were Jews. Um, communities were broken up, something like over half a million Jews were forced to become uh, refugees uh, running all over the interior of the Russian Empire. Um, let me ask once again, instead of asking about the general phenomena, let's focus on Vilna. Um, how many of those Jewish refugees ended up in Vilna? How were they received and how did they cope with what amounted to such a massive disruption of their life? So thousands and thousands of refugees ended up in Vilna. Uh, it, it was located in a place that, uh, that made it a kind of number one absorption center for, uh, for refugees, and this starts very early on. Uh, you have to keep in mind that there are two kinds of, uh, two kinds of refugees that come in. Uh, so you mentioned the uh, Battle of the Missourian Lakes, uh, we're now talking about the August and September of of um, nineteen fourteen, and there, there. Are, I'm sorry. I'm strike that. I'm gonna forgive me. I'm gonna back up for a second. 
the important thing to understand here is I talked about the Pale of Settlement before. This is in what was the western part of the Russian Empire. And this happens to be where the war is happening. Because if you look at a map, Germany and Austria are to the west of Russia. So the war zone and the Pale of Settlement are more or less the same geographical area. So the war is happening where the Jews are. Uh, so you have Jews starting as early as August 1914 uh, who just happen to live right near where the fighting is happening, and they run away, uh, naturally. Beyond that, you have areas where uh, the Russian army says, you know, civilians, get out of the way. Uh, you're just in the way. We don't want you to get hurt. And they also flee. Um, again, if you were to look at a map, you would see that if you drew a line straight west, more or less, from Vilna, uh, into the area where the fighting at the very beginning of the war in the summer and early fall of 1914 is happening, uh, you hit those places. You just go straight west. You hit those places. So Jews flee to Vilna. Um, at the same time, various Russian commanders uh, start, as you mentioned, they start throwing Jews out of the area in which they're fighting because they want to use the Jews as a scapegoat. In May of 1915, after the uh, Gorlitze Tarnov breakthrough, after this uh, major series of defeats for Russia, uh, they get together. The Russian high command decides to, well, they decide to expel all the Jews from the war zone. Uh, what really that means in practice at this point is they're going to expel them from the two provinces of Kovno and Suvalk, uh, which are the places that Russia hasn't lost yet and which are closest to the fighting. Again, Vilna is the nearest city uh, to those places. So starting in May, you get, you get not just thousands, but tens of thousands of refugees. Um, and it's totally overwhelming for the community. Uh, it's uh, uh, from the get-go, uh, the community is trying, the Jewish community is trying to hobble together the resources uh, to take care of them. The Russian government itself basically has neither the resources nor the organi- organization nor the will uh, to do anything about the refugee problem, especially when it comes to Jewish refugees, and double especially when it comes to refugees that it was punishing for their uh, alleged an imaginary role in Russian defeat. So the Jewish community is scrambling to pull itself together. And this has, it's uh, the argument I'm making in, in the book that I am uh, in the process of writing, this has a tremendous impact on the uh, Vilna's Jewish community because it has to kind of reorganize itself to deal with this. Um, and at this point, the Jewish communal leaders can still count on funds that are coming from the major Jewish organizations that are based in St. Petersburg. Uh, without getting ahead of myself too much, by the fall of that of that year, by Rosh Hashanah time, so we're talking September, October of 1915, uh, Germany seizes Vilna itself, and they're now cut off from their major sources of funding, which doubles the crisis. So, before we get into the the German occupation uh, itself, which I think is a fascinating topic, uh, let me ask a follow-up question. Uh, one thing I noticed that was mentioned in connection to the 
influx of refugees to major cities was that Jewish communities in many cases were forced to become, for lack of a better word, more democratized. Um, a lot of uh, communities that used to be top-down, run by elites, uh, were now people, ordinary people or more ordinary people had a vote, had more of a say in how the community was run, how the funds were allocated. Um, did something like that happen in Vilna in the wake of the refugee uh, crisis? Or did the local community manage to maintain control? Uh, that is almost exactly what happened, but it happens slowly. And I think we have to be a little bit careful about what we're talking about when we talk about uh, democratization. Eventually, by 1918, in Vilna and many other places, we're talking about the end of 1918, so the very end of the war, uh, the Jews get uh, what was something that certain liberal or progressive or whatever you want to call them, certain Jewish community leaders and thinkers wanted, which is what they call a democratic kila, the kila being the 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 local Jewish community's official organization and the board of that organization. And what they wanted was a system where they had elections every two years. Like you vote for the city council and you vote for the Jewish council. Um, but they do not get that till the end of the war. And from what I imagine and from what I do know, and there's a lot that is as of yet unknown, I think, to anyone, um, this is fairly typical. Uh, what happens instead in Vilna and is sometimes referred to inaccurately as democratization is you get a shift in terms of who's in charge. And, that, and part of that is a widening. It is a breaking of the old elite, but in some ways it's also replacing an old elite uh, with a new elite. So to explain that, I have to backtrack a bit and talk about uh, the what that old elite looks like and cut me off if I'm going on too long because I, I've spent years of my life probably thinking about these problems. Uh, the traditional elite in a place like Vilna, again, this is very typical of towns, cities, and shtetlach in the Pale of Settlement, has two parts. There are the rabbis and there are the people known in Hebrew or in Yiddish as the gavirim. Uh, the gavirim are in Hebrew, it literally translates something like mighty ones, but they're rich people. And like in any community of any kind, in any of any size, in any polity, uh, rich people have more influence than poor people. Uh, the Gvirim put up a lot of money for communal charities. Uh, Vilna in particular has a very rich and multifaceted uh, bunch of all kinds of communal and charitable organizations. There are old age homes, there are homes for the sick, there's a Jewish hospital, there are orphanages, uh, there are free schools uh, for people who can't afford to send their children to school, there are different kinds of schools, there are soup kitchens. Uh, so there's a very vibrant civil society and this is paid for largely by these kvirims, so they have influence. And they are the people who sit on that board, on the kihila or kahal, the, the Jewish communal board, and they're the people who have the most influence. On top of that, there's a third elite, which is a newer elite that's associated with uh, what in the jargon of the field is called 
post-liberal political movements. Uh, what that It's not a very helpful term. What it really means is the Zionist movement and socialist movements like the Bund, which was a socialist movement allied for most of its life with the main Russian Communist Party. Uh, again, we're talking before the Russian Revolution, not after. Uh, and But that wants to use Yiddish as its language and wants to have a particularly Jewish identity. Uh, what happens in Vilna is that on the one hand, as you said, the old elite can't keep up. Uh, and this happens at the very beginning. Uh, at the very beginning of the war, uh, these refugees start coming in and they don't know what to do. Uh, so they go to the the de facto chief rabbi of Vilna, who's a fellow named Reb Chaim Oizer Godzinski, uh, who's very well known, by the way, in Haredi circles uh, in Israel today. There are lots of schools named after him and streets, I believe, named after him. Uh, he's a very famous rabbi, a rabbi very involved. He's a great Talmud scholar and, and expert on Jewish law, but he's not the guy who spends all his time only studying. He's actively involved in communal affairs. And people come to him and say, what are we going to do? Where are we going to put these refugees? Where are we going to get the money? And he goes to some of these gvirim, some of these old-fashioned communal leaders, and they realize right away that they need to reach out to other people for help, which means they need to reach out for people who are not necessarily traditionally religious. Um, and that's a big deal. Uh, they need to get in touch with uh, central organizations in St. Petersburg, uh, which were themselves uh, not traditionally religious and were looked on or would have been looked on with some suspicion uh, by people like Rabbi Grunzinski. So this already is the beginning of a shift. Uh, but the other thing that happens, the other pressure, is that people move around. And again, it's very hard as a historian to know what to make of this sort of thing, because a lot of it is kind of random. Uh, people move into Vilna from new places who have new ideas about things. Uh, but also in September of uh, 1915, the Russian army attempts this massive retreat. Uh, basically, to give the military history in a nutshell, all the Russian commanders, like everybody else, had read War and Peace. They knew uh, from reading War and Peace that what happened when Napoleon was invaded, Ru invaded Russia is that uh, at some point when he was winning, the Russian army retreated deep into Russia. Napoleon's troops got bogged down in the Russian winter, and the Russians win the war. So uh, based on their attempt to do a kind of reality TV show enactment of the novel War and Peace, they attempt the same thing. It doesn't work as well, uh, but they try this massive scorched earth retreat. And every Russian official, every Russian officer and soldier is taken out of Vilna before the Germans get there. And a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to get out of here too. That means a lot of the old elites leave. Of course, it's the people with money who have the connections and the ability to get themselves out of there. Um, so rabbis leave, uh, these kvirim, these old-fashioned leaders leave, uh, and even some of the important uh, new kinds of leaders leave. Uh, there's a fellow named Leib Yatha, who's one of the most important people in the 
in the Zionist movement within Russia at the time. His base of operations is in Vilna. He gets the heck out of there in 1915. Uh, and this creates a leadership deficit, uh, which also means new people are coming into power and people with new ideas. And it's really this change. It is a democratization. Instead of the same six to 10 people, it's now a much larger group of maybe 30 to 40 people who are at the forefront of, of communal life and institutional life and what becomes a sort of political life. But this shouldn't be confused with actual democratization. Uh, I have m much more to say about this. I'm going to stop myself for now uh, so we don't get too off track. Absolutely fascinating, and uh, thank you for all that detail. Uh, I'm especially a very big fan of Rabbi Brudzinski because he was really the model of a, of a religious leader who knew how to deal with change in, a situa in such situations without uh, really compromising his core principles. Um, but now that you mentioned all that change, all that tumult, all that uh, chaos, with some leaders leaving and some staying and some new people coming in, and now Vilna is under the control of the Germans. And indeed, many Jews are now under the rule uh, of the Second Reich, not the Third Reich, the Imperial German Army. Um, I would note a few things. Um, one of the stories I very often heard was that a lot of Jews, when the Second World War happened, uh, didn't run away because they remembered that the German army wasn't all that bad when it occupied the place beforehand. Uh, and the second thing is that uh, I know that German Jews uh, became quite involved, often in a paternalistic way, to try and quote-unquote help their brethren in the East. So I guess I would uh, split my question on the question of German occupation into two parts. First, uh, what was the general experience of uh, Jews in the German World War One German zone of occupation with German officers and soldiers. How were they treated? Uh, were they able to get resources and so forth? And uh, second, was there any did the did the German Jewish involvement uh, ever reach further than, say, Poland or was it entirely like uh, the scholar Vechas Lulevicius in his wonderful book on the German occupation, was it effectively the plaything of people like Ludendorff? Okay, uh, there's a lot in that question, but um, exactly the things uh, that, that I also think we should be talking about. Uh, so rather than try to get it all that right away, uh, I'm gonna share a, a couple anecdotes about a fellow named Yankiv or Jacob uh, Vygotsky, uh, who was sort of the hero of my dissertation. He's a doctor uh, who, who lived in Vilna. Uh, again, he's uh, somewhat acculturated, uh, somewhat secular. He's a Zionist. Uh, he's a member of Vilna's Hebrew Club, uh, a very interesting guy. And because of this shift in the people who are there, he emerges um, from being someone who was involved in communal activities, but marginally before the war, he becomes the number one leader of the community uh, by the end of 1915. Uh, he is the Jewish representative to the Germans. He is able to get 
all kinds of concessions uh, from them uh, when at certain points he's someone who was educated, if I have it right, in Vienna. Uh, so he's quite fluent in German, which helps. Um, for instance, he's the person who convinces uh, the local German captain or major or whoever it is uh, to put up, start putting up signs in Yiddish. Uh, they were putting up signs in Polish and Lithuanian, uh, just with announcements and stuff people had to know. And Vygotsky convinces them to also put up signs in Yiddish. Uh, eventually, when the German occupation gets worse by 1917, Vygotsky makes a big fuss, uh, and the Germans get sick of him. He's such a pain in the neck. They send him off to a forced labor camp. Now, a World War I German forced labor camp is not a fun place to be, but it is entirely different uh, than a uh, German forced labor camp uh, during World War II. Uh, as, of course, you know, uh, the vast majority of people who get sent to the World War I forced labor camps, uh, and these are Jews and Gentiles, uh, survive. Uh, the vast majority of people in general who go to the uh, German ones during World War II even Gentiles, a very large number of them perish. Uh, so it's a very different animal. Um, that's Vygotsky. By 1941, the German, this is World War II, the Nazis show up in Vilna. Vygotsky is now, that's Eminence Gries, he's a, a, a very distinguished person in the community, the natural leader. Uh, the Germans show up and he, uh, He's the natural person to represent the Jews to the Germans. He thinks to himself, you know, uh, I did this once. I can do it again. I've seen this movie before. He starts walking right up to them and saying, you can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, they throw him in jail. And a day or two later, they kill him. Um, so that, I think, pretty much sums up the difference. Uh, going into slightly more granular detail, uh, the Germans look very good during World War I in comparison to World War II. Um, they do not, um, as the same as Lulevich, uh, uh, who the scholar you mentioned before, points out, uh, they do, even though a lot of them are anti Semites themselves, they do not really pursue anti Semitic policies uh, in any way. They're kind of equal opportunity mean to everybody. Uh, in some places, they actually favor the Jews in tiny little ways. Uh, but in other ways, their economic policies are often hardest on the Jews. And that's not because they didn't like Jews. It just has to do with the economic niche uh, in which the Jews uh, of Russia had been for centuries um, and the particularities of the extremely destructive uh, German economic policies, which were based on sort of uh, squeezing every last drop out of the land, both in terms of the physical labor of its people uh, and in terms of its natural resources, and were ultimately terribly self-defeating. Um, is that sufficient for that topic before I move on to your next question? I think that's more than sufficient, and I think it's, uh, it's great that you uh, uh, use that individual as a great anecdote. So let's move on to the second part of the question. Was there any interest among Ger the German Jewish community, especially German Jewish leaders, in their among their brethren in the East? Yes, uh, there most certainly is. 
uh, the the German Jews uh, have a lot less influence in Vilna uh, for a variety of reasons uh, than they do in, for instance, Kovno, which is the next big city over. Um, and it, that sort of difference shows how much is really just the product of chance and, and these weird little circumstances that happen. Um, the thing the Jews of Vilna and the Jews of, of the newly occupied German lands need the most is money. Uh, the, the war is an economic cat catas catastrophe for them, really, from the get-go. Uh, everything that happens in the war, or nearly everything that happens in the war, is destructive to the economy of this part of the world, and again, particularly destructive to the Jewish economy. And this is even before um, the German army starts monkeying around with uh, expropriating um, uh, agricultural products and, all, and price controls and everything else they do that makes such a mess of everything. Uh, so German Jews themselves don't actually have all that much money, but what they're able to do uh, right up until in 1917 when America joins the war is they're able to funny, funnel money from America through uh, Denmark to the um, to one of the main uh, German Jewish organizations, which is sort of like the uh, it, it's sort of like the uh, German equivalent of I don't know the American Jewish Committee or this big umbrella organization, uh, which then sends representatives um, to everywhere in Eastern Europe where it can uh, to try to help out uh, the the person in Vilna who has the key role in this is a is a rabbi named Zali Levy. Uh, not much is known about him, but what is known about him is very interesting. He's a chaplain with, I think, the 10th Division is the German division that's stationed there. And he works, even though he's a German army officer, he works hand-in-hand -hand with the central German organizations. Uh, he shows up. He finds the people in charge of the Jewish community in Vilna. He basically hands them a check and says, we can get more money, but you've got to get yourself organized. Um, we know there's a soup kitchen here, and we know there are seven more soup kitchens that you opened since the war started. Uh, we know that there's an old age home. We know that there are all these different things. Uh, but we can't deal with just kind of sending money to all these places at once. We need a central address uh, through which to funnel the funds. And this creates the organization of a Jewish committee uh, known as the Central Comitet, the Central Committee, uh, which, organ which brings all the charitable organizations under its rubric. It replaces the old traditional Kahila kind of community uh, organization. It's made up, its head is a rabbi, Rabbi Rubinstein, an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, rabbi Grodzinski at this point uh, is now uh, deep into Russia. Uh, he fled for various reasons. But the people really running it are people like uh, Yankee Vygotsky, who I mentioned before, uh, and other people. Most of them are doctors. Most of them are secular. And most of them have very new and different ideas about how they want the Jewish community to be run. And most of them aspire to a more democratic system of governance. So all these things are related. But the other half of your question is that the Jews of Vilna have this great sense of local pride. And I can't prove this 100%, unfortunately, but what I've pieced together is they basically 
wanted the German Jews to mind their own business, to send money, uh, but not attach any strings, uh, because we're the Jews of Vilna, we're the great Jewish intellectuals, uh, and we know how to run things ourselves. Um, in the city of Kovno nearby, which makes a great standard for comparison, uh, there's much more direct interference from German Jews. And bizarrely enough, uh, it's surprising anyone who knows just a little bit about how this would work, there's actually much more orthodox uh, control in Kovno because a couple prominent German Orthodox rabbis show up there and have the backing of the German military government. Uh, nothing like that happens in Vilna. Uh, so these very different kinds of weird things happen. Um, but that, I think, uh, answers the question in a nutshell. In Warsaw, which is under, as you alluded to, it's under a different kind of administration. There's a real quasi-civilian government that's set up there that's uh, not set up in points east like Vilna. Uh, there, the German Jews have a lot more influence as well. Um, so in that sense, Vilna is a little, is not anomalous, but represents a different model of what happened, which probably reflects what happens in other places too, which we'll find out when somebody, maybe me, eventually writes that, writes that history. Well, I look forward to uh, you discussing that and indeed publishing it. So all this is happening. Um, 1915 has happened. The community is upended. Uh, leadership is changing. There's a new person. There's a new uh, government in charge. And we roll around to 1917, probably one of the most underestimated yet fateful years uh, for Jewry around the world. Uh, and the three particular events happen that have both that have positive effects or at least positive promises uh, and the last one which we will uh, God willing uh, reach at the end has in my opinion the most negative effect let's start with the one with the most pr uh, that which seems to have the most promise in February and March of 1917 a revolution takes place in St. Petersburg, which effectively forces uh, Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate, something he did refuse to do in 1905. And a, not an elected government, but definitely a far, far more democratic government is set up in what remains of the Russian Empire, which promises civil rights to everyone uh, including integration um, and finally allowing Jews to enter all sorts of areas that they were not allowed to be before, including uh, the army. Uh, and so I was wondering, they're under German occupation, but nevertheless, they spent most of their lives as Russian subjects. The people of Vilna, how did they receive the news of this uh, revolution? Did, were they skeptical that it would last because of the war? Did they think that perhaps it would mean a great future? Or did they perhaps say to themselves, you know what, I'll take my chances with the Germans? So they were not too hopeful in general, and, and to the extent that I, I've been able to find documentation about this. Um, but they also didn't want to 
the they were not too hopeful, and they also couldn't express too much hope. Um, if they expressed too much hope about the revolution, uh, the Germans, who ran a very tight ship, there's very strict censorship. Uh, um, there's they bring in uh, Jews from Germany to censor the Yiddish newspapers. Um, they tend to be fairly uh, sympathetic to the to the Jews of Vilna, but still, um, this is this is nonetheless an issue. Um, and they're also, the Germans very closely monitor what news can be brought in. Uh, so we're not talking about the kinds of expression of your feelings that you would have in a free society. Um, but the Jews also can't say we're going to throw our lot in with the Germans because they know uh, to be afraid that who's going to know what happens after the war? The Russians could show up again and they could start sending to jail anyone who cooperated too much with the Germans. So the Jews are very, very canny about this uh, and very, very careful about it. Um, of course, they're hopeful that the revolution is a sign that things are going to work out better in the end. Uh, but mostly what they're concerned about is, see is seeing an end to the war and an end to the occupation, which, again, is, is economically devastating uh, to the extent that I should add this, that there are people starving to death in large numbers, there are large numbers of people dying of disease, and so forth. Uh, the reaction to the second Russian Revolution, which you're going to ask me about next, is a bit different, but I'll let you go ahead and ask. Well, before we get to that, um, something happened a few days before, and there was a connection to it. Uh, the Balfour Declaration was issued by the British government a few days before the Bolshevik Revolution, or as I like to call it, the Bolshevik coup d'etat, but that's for the next question. Um, and indeed, part of the intention was to try and forestall a second revolution against what was uh, seen as a, an increasingly dysfunctional government. How did um, the Jews, with their canny handling of the politics here and there react to what sounded like the a promise by a great power in the war to grant some form of possibly national independence to the Jews by the end of the war. Uh, they were ecstatic about Balfour. Uh, they might have curbed their enthusiasm a little bit because they didn't want to seem uh, particularly excited about anything Britain was doing because uh, as as you know, Britain and Germany were at war, but they were ecstatic. This is an overwhelmingly Zionist uh, community. It's a place where the where orthodoxy, uh, even of the most conservative type, didn't really see Zionism as a threat. Uh, so most people who were orthodox or vaguely orthodox were also Zionist or vaguely Zionist. Uh, so this is overwhelmingly positive. Uh, but it doesn't really have much effect on day-to-day -day life or even day-to-day -day political life. Okay, that makes sense, especially given that uh, most people are just waiting for the war to end. Uh, but then a few days later, uh, Lenin and the Bolshevik party launch uh, a coup d'etat against the Kerensky provisional government and effectively start what becomes the communist of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and we'll get to the civil war that that sparks uh, later on. But I'm curious to know, you mentioned how there, uh, there's people in the Bund, there are people who are socialists, uh, there are people who are 
even if they don't necessarily agree with Lenin's tactics, they do nevertheless want to see a revolution and reordering of Russian life. How did they, on the other hand, uh, the Germans were incredibly suspicious of Bolshevism and sought to contain it. So how did the Jews of Vilna, uh, before the Germans were forced to withdraw after they lost the war, how did they react to that particular event? Again, uh, the reaction is is mixed and also at this time somewhat muted. Uh, there, nobody's going to express his or her opinion too loudly. Uh, the newspapers end up being a, a great source for what was going on at this time, and they're not going to write, really not going to write anything about it uh, in the newspapers except for uh, reprinting the news reports the Germans give to them. Uh, but. First of all, no, and this goes for both Russian revolutions, no Jew was sorry to see the Tsar gone. Uh, anybody who had had any faith uh, that Russia was kind of progress, progressing in a Western European direction, uh, that it was just, you know, 50, 60 years behind, eventually it would give equal rights to its Jews and so forth and become less anti-Semitic. Anyone who might have thought that lost all faith in 1914 and 1915 with the expulsions of Jews, with the massacres of Jews by the retreating, uh, by the retreating Russian army. Uh, so people are happy for, in both re Russian revolutions, both the, uh, both the February Revolution and as you, you call it, the uh, October, you correctly call it, the Bolshevik coup d'etat. Uh, but no, everyone's happy to see the Tsar gone. Nobody knows exactly what the Bolsheviks are gonna be up to. The difference between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and the social revolutionaries uh, were very well known to people who were in revolutionary circles, uh, but not particularly well understood by people outside of those. Um, for people who are in the Bund, which at this point is, is still affiliated with the same umbrella organization um, as the Bolsheviks, uh, the, uh, the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, uh, the, they're very, very happy about this development. Uh, but again, it doesn't change too much the facts on the ground. Uh, if I can continue, uh, what does change the facts on the ground is comes a little bit later uh, when the Germans take the city of Riga, um, which is the kind of next important city uh, that the the Germans had this major offensive in 1915 that we talked about before. Then, uh, it, so if you back up and look at the World War One as a whole, the German policy is basically to attack on the Western Front in even years and to attack on on the Eastern Front in odd years. Uh, so towards the very end of 1917, there's a uh, German offensive that takes Riga, uh, which is now the capital capital of Latvia and the area around it. And what this does, uh, besides really breaking the spirits of the Russian army, is it puts Jews in Vilna and Kovno and places like that that had been under German occupation from 1915 into contact with Jews who lived through both Russian revolutions. And they're exposed to a kind of cultural foment uh, that is going on among Jews there. Uh, some of it has to do with socialism, uh, but also just to take one example, uh, there's a Union for Jewish Culture uh, that had been founded in Kiev right after the February Revolution, 
called the Tarbut's League. Tarbut, as you know, is the Hebrew word for culture, uh, which becomes incredibly influential, not in Russia uh, after the war, because the Bolsheviks, of course, destroy it, uh, but it becomes incredibly influential in Poland and Lithuania. Uh, so all of a sudden, the Vilna Hebrew Club is revitalized, and now it's the Tarbut Club. It's now part of this. Vilna started this ground path-breaking uh, Hebrew high school in 1915. Now all of a sudden, it's calling itself the Tarbut High School because it's linked up with this broader movement. And this happens on lots of levels. Uh, the sort of next stage of this happens in March of 1918 when the uh, brest Treaty is signed, and there's just much more openness. The Brest-Litovsk Treaty is the treaty that ends World War I on the Eastern Front. Russia, uh, now Bolshevik Russia, Soviet Russia makes peace uh, with the Germans and the Austrians. And because of that, there's much more freedom of movement. So now people are exposed much more. People in Vilna, people in other places like Vilna that were under, had been under German rule to what was going on in Russia. And this causes a lot of excitement, but it's mostly cultural and not political excitement uh, because as, as long as the Germans are in charge, politics is sort of on ice. Uh, and again, you can't do too much. You don't want to say too much out loud. And you're just waiting to see what happens. That's really fascinating. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, so you constantly refer to the fact that politics is on ice, and rightly so, when the Germans are occupying uh, large swaths of uh, Eastern Europe. But in November 11th, 1918, the war effectively ends. And most, if not all, of the German armed forces, uh, fairly enthusiastically, run for home. Uh, which leaves an enormous power vacuum and really uh, launches what is known as the Russian Civil War between b the Bolsheviks and their allies and that rather strange alliance of monarchists and anti-Bolsheviks known as the Whites. Um, and everybody is forced to pick a side or constantly switch sides. Uh, and, it and it becomes a very dangerous time for minorities and especially Jews um, because there's a, there's a wave of pogroms. Every, uh, all the whites and people think that every single Jew as such is a murderous Bolshevik and they, uh, they slaughter Jews on a scale that is not, you know, perhaps comparable to the Khmelnytsky Rebellion in the 17th century, but nothing like it until the Holocaust itself. Um, so now that politics is no longer on ice, but things are really scary and really dangerous and really unstable, how do the Jews of Vilna manage this transition? Uh, so it's a very difficult time. Uh, Vilna is not caught up in the Russian Civil War per se, uh, but it's caught up in one of the wars that happens simultaneously with the Russian Civil War, which is the Polish-Bolshevik War. Um, and basically what happens is the Germans actually don't leave Vilna till uh, December 31st, 1918, uh, though things get a little 
chaotic, they get very free in, in a really a positive sense. Between November 11th, when the armistice is signed, and December 31st, the Germans are still basically in charge. Uh, and nobody knows what's going to happen next. Um, but while this is going on, Poland, which had not been an independent country uh, prior to World War I, uh, all of a sudden declares its independence, pulls itself together from the part of it that had been part of uh, Germany, the part that had been part of Austria, and the part that had been part of Russia, um, and has to decide where its borders are going to be. And of course, Poland thinks its borders should be, should include Vilna, which is, is an extremely special city to Polish patriots. Uh, the, if you permit me a, a, a brief digression, the person who's the leader of Poland at the time eventually becomes Poland's sort of dictator, Józef Polsudski. Uh, he's from uh, a, a village that's not far from Vilna. He grew up there. And when he dies in 1935, he has his body buried, buried in Krakow under the castle there next to the bodies of the, the Polish kings. And he has his heart buried in Vilna. Uh, which is very gruesome, but shows how important Vilna was uh, to Polish nationalists. So the Poles want Vilna. Uh, the Lithuanians, uh, who also declare independence and then receive independence uh, from the treaties that, uh, that are associated with the Treaty of Versailles, uh, they also want Vilna. It is, after all, the Lithuanian capital. Nobody really disputes that. Um, the Poles just think Lithuania is a part of Poland. And of course, the Soviets or Bolsheviks want to ex expand Russia's borders to get back everything that they lost in in the earlier parts of World War One to the Germans, and maybe and then some. Remember, at this point, nobody's sure what's going to happen with the Soviet Union. Uh, around the exact same time, there's a uh, a basically a, a German Bolshevik takeover in Germany. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. Uh, are briefly in charge, and, and they try a revolution, which gets quickly squashed. Um, so for all anybody knows, the Soviet army is going to march right through Poland, hook up with Germany, and then, I don't know, France is next. The whole world is going to have a uh, great communist revolution, just the way Karl Marx predicted, or something like that. Um, so sorry, I got a little off topic, but stepping back a second to Vilna. Um, so Vilna is now part of this three-way conflict between um, the Soviets, the Poles, and the Lithuanians. The Lithuanians don't have an army. Uh, so they're in charge of Lithuania for, for of, of Vilnius for about six or seven days. Um, but then the Poles march in uh, with their army. So in the period between uh, 1918, when the war ends, and 1922, when Poland formally annexes Vilna, it changes hands, I believe, six times uh, back and forth between Poles, Soviets, and uh, Lithuanians. And it's really after the, uh, the Bolsheviks come in in 1919, and then they're pushed out by the Poles that it gets bad in particular. Uh, the Poles, uh, the, the Polish legion that comes in has an anti-Semitic leader. And the first thing they do is they round up a bunch of Jews, uh, they carry out a small pogrom, they execute uh, a Yiddish uh, playwright and theater critic, of all things, um, the, uh, the most dangerous Jew they could find, uh, named Aleph Weiter. Um, his roommates, uh, one of whom is a guy named Shmuel Niger, who's a very, very important uh, Yiddish uh, intellectual and uh, 
also literary critic, theater critic, very interesting guy, uh, is also arrested but released. Um, and it's a terrible, uh, terrible time. And it's a, a very bad sign for the Jews. They take it as a sign that Polish rule is not going to be so great. Until then, they really hoped uh, that it might be much better than Tsarist rule. In some ways, it is. Uh, but this is a sign that things are, are going to be bad. Um, there's no massive slaughter in Vilna. There's another, the Soviets eventually come back, they leave again, the Poles come, they kill a few more people, but there's nothing like that. Not so far away in what's now Belarus, uh, the commander of the white forces is a guy named Bulak Balachovich, who in some books appears as Balachovich Bulak, who's the commanding uh, arm officer of the uh, white Russian troops who are there, the anti-Bolshevik Russian troops. Um, and his forces probably slaughter tens of thousands, if not thousands of Jews. Uh, and in Ukraine, uh, where there's a, yet another side to the war, there's a Ukrainian side, and there are actually a few different Ukrainian sides, uh, the violence against Jews is, is the greatest. Um, and we're talking about deaths in the hundreds of thousands. And like you said, on, on a very different scale in a very different manner uh, than anything uh, you've seen previously in modern Jewish history up until the Holocaust. So, um, so it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, while the while the actions of the Polish Legion was obviously awful, um, so far as I know, Yosef Pilsudski himself was actually remembered quite fondly by Jews uh, during his rule and was remembered as quite tolerant to minorities. So uh, as a follow-up, how did he react? Uh, did he know about uh, the violence of his people? Did he do anything to try uh, and stop it? Because we know that, okay, maybe he wasn't entirely a, 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 a liberal Democrat, but we know that he was not uh, all that uh, anti-Jewish. So uh, the, what you're saying about Pasutsky is, is absolutely 100% correct. Uh, he, was, he was not an anti-Semite. Um, he grew up in a place in, in a part of the world where there were lots of Jews. Uh, and he had a vision of Poland that was to some extent, pluralistic might be an exaggeration, but that, uh, that was relatively pluralistic. His great rival was this guy named Roman Domofsky, who, who was a ferocious anti-Semite and, and to a lesser extent was anti-Ukrainian um, and wanted a Poland that was smaller, ethnically homogenous, and 100% Catholic, which is eventually uh, the Poland they get after, after 1946. Uh, Pilsudski had a vision of a kind of romantic recreation of the of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth of the of the 16th and 17th centuries, where Lithuanians and Poles and Jews got along, and where Jews were kind of a separate but important, crucial part of that. Uh, he had also been a socialist uh, for most of his career, only after, nobody knows exactly when he stopped being a socialist, but probably during World War I. Uh, but as a socialist, he had very close relationships uh, with uh, the Jewish socialists who were in kind of overlapping circles. Uh, so he had nothing against the Jews. He loved having his picture taken, meeting with rabbis. Uh, he had a meeting with uh, the Chafetz Chaim, who was probably the most, the best remembered rabbi of, 
of this part of the world in that era. Um, and you can find, even on the internet, you can find all these pictures. But, well, I should say up, up front, before I continue, I don't know offhand exactly, or I don't remember the ex precise answer to your question about how he reacted to this particular pogrom. Uh, but basically, we're dealing with a situation where Poland isn't a country yet. It's very much in a situation like Israel was in 1947 through 1949, where it's a country that doesn't exist uh, and is already fighting a war of independence. Uh, but in Israel, there was there was a central Yishuv government headed by Ben-Gurion, and there was a much clearer sense of who was in charge, uh, even though as, as you and anyone familiar with some Israeli history knows well, uh, it wasn't absolutely clear who was in charge. Um, in Poland, there are different legions raised by different people uh, doing different things under different generals, and nobody's really in charge. Um, Pilsudski at this point, if there's one person in charge, it's him, but he's not really in control. So there's very little he could have done. Uh, so I wouldn't hold this against Pilsudski so much. Um, and uh, again, when he was in charge, he did stop programs from happening. Uh, there were other generals, Yusuf Halar, if I'm getting it right, who was fighting in Galicia, whose troops led the pogrom against in Lvov, which was the biggest of the pogroms of 1919, or maybe that was 1918, but almost the exact same time. Uh, Halar's troops tended to be much less good. Uh, but again, there, there wasn't that much uh, control from the top, and that was a big problem, and there's a very a more historically thorny, uh, but very similar problem uh, that happened in, in Ukraine. Okay, I think that's a fair response and uh, explanation as to how Pilsudski managed the issue. Um, I think that's a great place to round off, uh, to end off. Uh, why don't you tell our uh, followers uh, if they're interested in learning more about this fascinating subject and uh, especially the story of uh, the transformation of the uh, the Jewish community of Vilna, um, how they can learn more about the subject? Well, uh, the first thing to do is, uh, well, it's for me to finish my book and you should all buy it uh, when it comes out. Uh, but that's right now on me. Uh, if you have, uh, especially if you have access to JSTOR, to University Library, uh, I've published two articles uh, on this subject uh, that I think give a lot of, that are about more narrow topics having to do with rabbis uh, and the rabbinic leadership, but I think give a lot of useful historical background. Uh, one of them was uh, published in the AJS Review, the Association of Jewish Studies Review, uh, and is called uh, Refugee Rabbis During World War One, or something like that. Uh, there's also one in the Journal of uh, called European, European Judaism, uh, written by me, which is called Two Rabbis and a Rebetzin. Uh, the title is probably better than the paper, uh, but I'm going to toot my own horn and recommend that. I also highly recommend, uh, for the most basic information, uh, going to the uh, YIVO Encyclopedia online. Uh, I think it's just yivoencyclopedia.com or .org. Uh, and anyways, it's yivo, and Google will do the rest of the work for you. Uh, if you go to the articles on World War One and on Vilna, uh, 
Uh, they're extremely well done and will give you a, a very brief uh, introduction uh, to the subject. Uh, unfortunately, the decisive history of uh, East European Jewry or Russian Jewry during World War I is yet to be written. Uh, and it's an enormous task, and there's more coming about it, about it all the time. Uh, the one other thing I'll recommend uh, is not has very little to say about Vilna, uh, but there's a book by a Jewish revolutionary, a fascinating guy um, named uh, Shin Ansky. Uh, the Yiddish title is Chorben Galicia, and if you read Yiddish, you can get it at the Yiddish Book Center. You can download it for free. Uh, but if you don't read Yiddish. I believe it's available in Hebrew translation, and there's a very good abridged translation uh, by Joachim Neugroschel. Uh, the title is The Enemy at His Pleasure, and it's a great, beautifully written, powerful way to understand this time period in general. Wonderful. Uh, and I very much look forward to that history being written because it's uh, past time that it is. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on. I've learned a great deal, and I hope our listeners have too. Thank you, Avi. This was tremendously fun, and uh, my first experience being on a podcast. So thank you for that too. My pleasure.